Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Hello and welcome to SciShow Tangents, the frightly competitive science knowledge scream case. I'm your ghost for this week, Sam Skulls. And joining me, as always, is mad scientist, Scary Riley. Eek! And the scariest thing of all is is man's inability to plan for the future. So (laughs) (laughs) this week, yet again, fortunately for us, Unfortunately for Hank, he has to miss the fun Halloween hijinks. Uh, we have Deboki Chakravarti back with us again. Boo! Ooh. Boo! That was mean. <laughs> no, that was a very assertive ghost. <laughs> that was a mean ghost who wants to see your manager. <laughs> okay, so this week I have to have another question of the week. What is the best Halloween costume that either of you have ever had? In college, I went through a phase of wanting to do, instead of like doing like sexy whatever thing, I wanted to do a hipster whatever thing. So Mm, I did mm -hmm. a hipster Cleopatra costume that I was very excited about. I just kind of like decked out in leggings and I think a t-shirt about like having found Mark Antony first before everyone else fell in love with him, I think. And like some other (laughs) things that have nothing to do with Cleopatra, like the actual historical figure and are just hipster reimaginings of what it would have been like to be her. That's great. A particular point in the 2010s. 
You were really sticking it to the hipsters just like everybody else was. I mean, really, like every Halloween costume, it's the stuff that you want to wear on a normal basis and don't, <laughs> don't actually do. Well, Sari, did you think of a costume? Yeah, I feel like I usually try, if I'm with other people, to go fairly all out on a Halloween costume. I think one of the coolest ones that I did was when my hair was really long and I had dyed it red. I was Sally from Nightmare Before Christmas, and my friend Caitlin Salem sewed together a bunch of fabric scraps to make her dress, and then I, like, painted on it to decorate it to make it look more raggedy. And I just had the hair, and then I painted myself blue. (laughs) What was that for Halloween? It's always a good one when you have to paint your entire body. Mm -hmm. I won't be answering the question. No, you got to answer. (laughs) Please. You also do good Halloween costumes. I kind of thought you guys would go more for childhood Halloween costumes. So my favorite Halloween costume ever was when I was a little kid, my mom sewed me like a dinosaur onesie with like a big tail. And I just wore it for like two years. (laughs) It was like what I wore at home. So there's lots of pictures of me just like as a dinosaur with my big old tail sticking out. And I remember walking around and smashing stuff over with it. So <laughs> that was probably my favorite one. Yeah, like you, when you say like you wore it, like it was like not even just a Halloween thing. Like this was like- It your- was like my playtime clothes. Mm-hmm. It was like my, it was like wearing pajamas. Like you get home and you take off your hard pants and put on your soft pants. Except I would get home and I would put on my dinosaur outfit. <laughs> and I was like four. So it was cute, maybe five. I wasn't like- 13. So, you know, it was okay. So every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to unnerve, disgust, and horrify each other with science facts while trying to stay on topic. Our panelists are playing for gory and to bokey bucks this episode. You can also call it boke bucks. Oh, boke bucks. You've been thinking about this. (laughs) I love the alliteration. Well, allow me to start over. Our panelists are playing for Gory and Boke Bucks, which Devoki will be awarding as we play. And at the end of the episode, one of us will be crowned the winner. And for this most horrible, awful, and bone-chilling month of all, we'll be focusing on some traditionally eerie topics. But each week, we will all collaborate on an exquisite corpse poem. And if you haven't been listening, exquisite corpse poems are collaborative poems where the participants take turns writing the next word of a poem without being able to see the words everyone else has written. So now we introduce this week's topic of terror with our next exquisite corpse science poem. Illuminated satellite, glowing, waxing, a bright howl from shadowy moonlight. The evening face, a morbid veil, eerie fright, space flight, all eyes watching the nocturnal orb, sightlessly radiating from the midnight shroud monthly. Bloody eye satellite, absorbed in its shimmering craters, the pale beasts of night, harsh, waning werewolf phases. The looming traitor shines from orbit, an opaque seer, haunting, skulking suspects, floating patiently, quietly. This topic this week is moon. Sari, what is the moon? So the moon is... Earth's only natural satellite, so an object that is orbiting around Earth. I guess I didn't define natural satellite. I tried to do it (laughs) off the top of my head, but that's what it is. I think it's used for any sort of rocky thing or minerally thing that orbits a planet, a dwarf planet, or a small solar system body. And like natural Mm -hmm. satellites can have smaller natural satellites all the way down. 
Um, okay. I don't know what the difference is when it gets to be a small enough rock, if you call it a natural satellite, or you're just like, that's an asteroid. That's a piece of dust. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fleck mm. of dust. And the moon's origin story is basically that scientists think that it formed around 4.51 billion years ago. So a little bit after Earth, um, when there was a giant impact between Earth and a Mars-sized rock in space called Thea, T-H-E-I-A. And then, because it was a smaller chunk than Earth, as the gravity pulled on each other, then it started orbiting around Earth instead of the other way around, even though the Earth is also influenced by the moon in the way that our planet rotates and revolves. Did you look into why the moon's scary at all? I did. I think the moon has been written off as spooky because it has been blamed for strange behavior. That's like a time-honored mm. tradition. It's like, oh, that full moon, people are up to no good. And it's possible that this, it is solidly a myth. It's fully been fully debunked by scientific studies comparing like behavior on full moon nights versus new moon nights and things like that. But it's possible that before artificial lighting, like gas lighting, the light of the moon was just bright enough that mm. it allowed people to go outdoors for later and for longer than they normally would. And, and so, get up to no good. Yeah, they could get up to debauchery okay. because they just yeah. had more vision as they were outside and probably got less sleep. And when people are a little bit sleep-deprived, they get a little little nuts sometimes. Like that probably played into it. Like the idea of lunacy oh. that came from the the idea of people being wild uh, in relation to the moon. I think it's interesting, though, because a lot of the mythology around the moon being associated with like spookiness and debauchery and, and creepiness also mm -hmm. comes from, I think, cultures where Halloween is a thing. So like very largely like European uh, oh, cultures. Okay. But yeah. In a lot of other regions of the world, the moon is seen as sacred instead. Right. So like the basis of lunar calendars or like the fact that it orbits about once a month around the Earth. And like that, that is a lunar cycle lines up with like a menstrual cycle. So it's associated with fertility and is otherwise like revered in other mm -hmm. ways is seen as like a very important part of the night sky. And I think that a lot of the the moon creates bad things comes from the same lore as like European vampires and werewolves and ghosts werewolves and, and things stuff. like that. Right. But in other parts of the world, they're like, that guy? That guy's not scary. Yeah. We love that guy. They're <laughs> great. Uh, did you look up any moon words? I did. Uh, so the, the origin of moon, meaning the orb that revolves around the earth, it comes from the Proto-Indo-European root M-E like meh, I think, mm -hmm. which means to measure in, in reference to the moons being used as like a measurement device. So Interesting. people used to use the moon as timekeeping in like the lunar calendar kind of sense. And that stuck around where it turned into words for month and moon and month kind of co-evolved as as words and nouns. That's wild. Yeah. All right, very interesting. That means it's time to move on to the next part of the show. Uh, the quiz portion of the show in this episode will be hosted by Deboki. So today we are going to be doing... Truth or fail? 
mysterious moon edition because the moon is very mysterious but also astronomers have found ways to accidentally make it more mysterious by misplacing or obscuring their notes and records about the moon leaving it to future generations to solve those mysteries Hmm. so for today's truth or fail i will present to you three historical moon mysteries in the intrepid scientific detective work done to solve them but Only one of them is a real story. So which of the following mysteries is the real mystery? Mystery number one. In the 1970s, scientists were surprised to find that the moon had gotten warmer after astronauts landed on it. But several years worth of temperature data went missing, leaving the cause of the moon's warming a mystery until a group of researchers managed to track down a set of forgotten archives containing the missing data. Mystery number two, John Herschel was a 19th century astronomer who created models of the moon's craters using boiled potatoes that he carved and then photographed for the public. But Herschel's penmanship was not very legible, leaving historians of science unable to replicate his preferred potato carving methods until they tracked down letters from his aunt and astronomy mentor, Carolyn Herschel, describing her tips for potato modeling success. What? Mystery number three. In the 16th century, Leonardo da Vinci painted a series of portraits whose subject's skin appeared unusually gray compared to his more famous fare, leaving art historians stumped as to why he would make such a strange choice until they uncovered a set of his notes describing and illustrating his theory on what the moon is made of and in particular how light would hit a subject if they were posing on the moon. Whoa, what a weirdo. (laughs) So, mystery number one, scientists hunt down missing data to solve the mystery of the warming moon. Mystery number two, historians decode the recipe of the tater crater. (laughs) Mystery number three, art historians illuminate da Vinci's moonlight inspiration. What's the use of the potato thing? So that he can create little model uh, like craters to then take yeah. a picture of because he can't take a picture with his, like of what he's seeing through his telescope. Oh. So, okay. so he's like, this is what the moon looks like. Yeah. Is this just Close Encounters of the Third Kind? And you have... Have you have you seen that movie? No, no, I have not. Okay, well, it's not then. <laughs> All right. There's very famous potato sculpting that happens oh, in that movie. Oh, there is? Um, I don't really have questions. They all sound fake to me. <laughs> oh. Yeah, they all sound really fake to me too. Lunar warming doesn't seem possible. Yeah, or like like losing data in that way seems very silly, but also very human. But could the moon warm up? There has to be energy transfers from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's some way where like the sun could warm the moon with like a solar flare or if like that outburst of energy could warm up the moon in some way mm-hmm. or if it would just be like particles. The problem is is like thinking of heat as just atoms vibrating or as like molecules vibrating is what messes up my idea of like the moon getting warmer or colder because it's just yeah. like yeah. a lot of things can make the moon shake. I feel like the Da Vinci one seems just crazy enough that he would have thought of it maybe. Yeah, you're the art guy. What? How do you feel about Da Vinci? I don't know anything about him really. <laughs> He seemed like a bona fide kook, though. He might look at the moon and be like, hey, what if I had a naked guy up there? How would that look? (laughs) 
<laughs> so that sounds about right to me. So I think I'm going to pick that one. Great. You're going with Da Vinci. Oh, yeah. The potato thing seems not useful for long enough for anybody to try to replicate it. I'm going to do the potato one because of that. I feel like <laughs> he's just not, you just don't have anything better. What do you have? Clay? You don't have styrofoam. Yeah, you don't have you a named gun. something better. Clay. We've had clay forever. We've had clay longer than we have potatoes. Yeah, but he's just a scientist man looking around from his telescope being like, what do I got? What do I got? An onion? No. Potato? Sure. <laughs> we've got Sari down for the potato crater. And we've got yeah. Sam down for the Da Vinci moon series. You look really proud of yourself. I'm so proud of myself. I get so nervous about these because I am always convinced that you guys are going to see through my lies. And this time, you did not. I, wow. uh It was number one. Oh, uh, no. Wow. It, was, it was the moon warming. In the 70s on the Apollo 15 and 17 missions, astronauts actually set up temperature probes to like collect data on the temperature both at the moon's surface and then a few meters below it um, so that we could learn more about what's going on inside the moon. And so those probes collected data from 1971 to 1977. The measurements from the probes showed that after the astronauts landed, the temperature on the moon went up one to two degrees Celsius. Um, but it wasn't clear why this happened. There were some theories that maybe like there was something about the astronaut activity. Um, maybe there's something about the moon's orbit that was like weird. But unfortunately, the raw data was recorded on magnetic tapes. And when NASA went to go archive those tapes, only a few years worth of data was archived. For some reason, a whole like section of the, that whole timeline um, in the 70s like just went missing and no one really <laughs> knew where it went until uh, 2010 when researchers decided they really wanted to solve this mystery. They really wanted to be able to look at all of this data and come to some kind of theory about why the moon seemed to be getting warmer with the astronauts on it. So they hunted down a set of archival tapes that like, I guess people just didn't remember had existed um, that contained the data. And then even then, like even when they found those tapes, they still had to extract the data and analyze it. So that took several years still because these are like 70s magnetic tape. So it took a while, but they actually, based on the results from the data collection and also looking at images of the moon during the mission, they came up with this hypothesis that humans actually heated up the moon by walking on it. Um, because Whoa. as astronauts were walking on their on the moon, their footsteps disturbed the soil so that it actually got darker, which then absorbed more light from the sun. It's like as they were walking, there was like the top layer of soil would kind of get disturbed in the bottom bottom layer would come to the top and that was darker. So yeah, it would absorb more light from the sun and that in turn might have slightly warmed up uh, the moon. Oh man, we ruin everything. Yeah. <laughs> and then for the other mysteries, uh, John Herschel did not use potatoes, but he did create little paper mache uh, structures to like depict the moon that he took pictures of and share with people. Um, this was also partially like inspired by the fact that according to NASA.gov itself, Saturn has a moon that is shaped like a sweet potato and another moon shaped <laughs> like a potato. So I was just like very into like a potato moon um, sure. at the moment. Did his mom really help him with stuff? Uh, so his uh, this was his aunt, um, Carolyn Herschel, and she was also uh. an accomplished astronomer. She discovered comets. Um, she worked with William Herschel, who was John's dad, and they discovered mm. Uranus together. And I think she was actually like... Like his mentor and helped him help John Herschel learn how to do the astronomy. Cool. And then Da Vinci did not paint a series of moon 
portraits, but he did theorize about this thing called Earthshine, which is basically why we can see the moon during the day, like even when the sky isn't completely dark. And it's because like sunlight is reflecting off of the earth onto the moon. And he theorized that this might be what's going on, but he did get like a few details wrong. Like he thought that the moon had oceans on it. And he also thought that like light was reflecting from our oceans, but actually it's like reflecting from our atmosphere. But uh, I do think it's cool that he, even though like he got a few of these details wrong, he like had this like idea overall about how how we see the moon. Something tells me we're gonna learn a little bit more about oh. Earthshine. Oh. All right. Well, we both completely turfed out. We did our best. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, next up, uh, we're gonna take a short break, and then it's time for the fact off. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best-selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. 
Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme, sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers and the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's manukora.com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome back, and now get ready for the fact off. Our panelists, me and Sari, have each brought a science fact to present in an attempt to blow Deboki's mind. Uh, after we've presented our facts, Deboki will judge them and award Boke books any way that she sees fit. But before we start, Deboki will have a trivia question for us to determine who will go first. When extra lunar materials hit the moon, they often leave behind a bit of themselves. This process of adding materials or layers to the moon from impacts is called accretion. Based on the materials in moon rocks, researchers estimate that about 2.7 times 10 to the 19th kilograms of material has accreted on our moon's mantle and crust. But the Earth has accreted even more materials. So how many orders of magnitude less accretion does the moon have compared to Earth? Uh, so is, is it like orders of magnitude are like 10 to the power of something? Yeah. So orders of magnitude are like 10 to the power number. So like uh-huh. 10 to the one is 10, 10 to the two is hundred. So maybe like if you want to just give the exponent, does that make sense? Okay. So why don't you go ahead and answer first? <laughs> I think it's um, uh, 10,000 times less cool. so than Sarah's the earth. Got, got four or a.k.a. 10,000. I'll say five. (laughs) Or 100,000. Yeah. So Sam's got five or 100,000. The answer is three or 1,000. There are three orders of magnitude lower than what has accreted uh, to Earth. The Earth is estimated to have accreted two times 10 to the 22 kilograms of extraterrestrial material. That makes sense. Earth is like a slightly bigger blob, so more dust gets stuck on it. Yeah. It's like, eh. Anyway, who goes first, Sari? <laughs> um, I'll go first. Moonlight can set the scene for lots of different things, from monsters awakening to hidden romances blossoming. In fact, it does a little bit of both for the corals in the Great Barrier Reef every year. Corals are animals. They're little marine invertebrates that live in big colonies and secrete calcium carbonate to make a sturdy exoskeleton. And they often have symbioses with photosynthetic zooxanthellae, and respond to stimuli like the movement of tides, the temperature and composition of the water, and the weather above the surface. But every year, a couple nights after the full moon in October, November, and December, uh, so right around the corner, the corals go through a ritual. They produce what looks like an underwater blizzard with white and red and orange colors swirling around in moonlit ocean water. It's not dead cells like marine snow or a feeding frenzy. It's sex, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, the corals synchronize and spew out trillions of packets of eggs and sperm from their guts all at once to increase the chance of fertilization and let their larvae drift away in the nighttime currents to settle in new locations. As a 2007 study found, the synchronization is because the bright moon is a clear visual cue for all these coral reef species, even though none of the polyps have eyes. 
Instead, it's a different molecular mechanism that involves a kind of photoreceptor called cryptochromes, which are a pretty ancient class of proteins found in animals, plants, and bacteria at the very least. And cryptochromes get their names not because of their mysteriousness or something Halloween-y like a crypt, unfortunately, but because they were heavily studied in cryptogams, which are plants like ferns that reproduce by spores instead of flowers or seeds. But anyway, cryptochromes are photoreceptors that detect blue light and play a role in circadian rhythms in various species, so they're involved in biological timekeeping. And this 2007 study focused on the coral Acropora millipora, and found that cryptochrome genes, specifically CRY2, were expressed significantly more on full moon nights than new moon nights. So they concluded that these corals probably get in the mood because of various ocean water factors, but the bright light from the full moon is the signal to all reproduce together. So if you're snorkeling near the Great Barrier Reef on a warm October night just after the full moon, watch out for coral sex. Yeah, you're going to get <laughs> coral jizz all over you. Yeah. <laughs> get out of there. Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they're studied in this one plant. Are they found in other species? Yeah, they are. I think we found them in various species of animals, both vertebrates and invertebrates. So like corals, uh, but also I think mice and humans. Oh, right. That makes sense. Um, and then plants. A variety of plants, I think, both like ferns, which reproduce by spores, but also plants that reproduce with seeds and flowers. And so we think that because they're in so many different organisms, they're like a pretty ancient kind of protein. And they evolved pretty early on in our sensory um, explorations of the world. So we like really needed to know what's going on with the moon. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Ready for me now? Yes. So when you look at a waxing or waning moon, you see the part illuminated by the sun, obviously the really shiny part, but you can also generally see the rest of the moon very dimly illuminated. And being a big dumb guy, I thought that the dim illumination might somehow be also coming from the sun and like, I don't know, wrapping around it somehow. Uh, But that is not what it is. It is light from the sun, as most light tends to be, but it has bounced off of Earth back onto the moon in what is known as Earth shine or the Da Vinci Glow <laughs> oh. is also what it's called because yeah. we heard all about why it's called that. And like all things, Earthshine is quantifiable and there are observatories out there that make a point to measure the brightness of Earthshine every night. One of those observatories is the Big Bear Observatory on Big Bear Lake in California. And they recently graphed out their Earthshine brightness measurements from every night for the last 20 years. And that process must have been very boring because they said that after about 17 years of very little change, they didn't want to finish the last three years and they almost gave up. But it's a good thing they didn't and they powered through because they discovered something sort of like unnerving and bad in the last three years of measurements. So what they found was that Earth is reflecting half a watt less onto the moon than it was 20 years ago, which suggests a 0.5% drop in the Earth's reflectiveness. And a lot of that drop happened, like almost all of it, I think, in the last three years, uh, happened so much so that the team thought that they had done something wrong. They went back and ran all the numbers, discovered they weren't doing anything wrong. It was just dropping really fast. So Earth's reflectiveness, or albedo, as eggheads would call it, has (laughs) been something that climate change scientists have been keeping an eye on. Uh, Any light that doesn't get bounced off of Earth's surface assumedly stays trapped as heat energy, and melting sea ice has already been increasing Earth's albedo. But climate scientists thought that the warming Earth might be more clouds would form. 
which would increase Earth's albedo and maybe help us out a little bit. But this Earthshine report kind of debunks that idea. And specifically, they pointed to massively reduced cloud cover over the Pacific Ocean as like the biggest culprit of reduced Earthshine. So if you're a witch, a werewolf, or some other creature of the night, reduced Earthshine might make a darker, more mysterious night for you to do your dirty deeds in and make more dramatic moons. But it'll also mean yet another terrifying contributor to the greatest monster of our time global warming <laughs> man it's like we're there's been this running thing of theme of just how much we are changing the moon by changing yeah. things on earth or yeah. just by going there whoops sorry <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking about this when in terms of how we always talk about the moon in terms of how we're affected by the moon but it's like the moon's also affected by us it's our satellite it can't it can't escape us yeah we're stepping all over it we're messing up the earth so like we can see it differently. Yeah. Maybe now it's going to get colder again. Like we warmed it up. Maybe if there's less light reflecting back on it, I don't know if that'll lower its temperature at all. I would assume so. Yeah. It'll snow mm-hmm. on the moon. <laughs> okay. So we've got two very good facts about the moon. I like them both a lot. We have from Sari the fact that moonlight is used as an indicator for coral reefs to engage in very dramatic mating behavior. Um, and then from Sam, we've got the Earth has been reflecting less light onto the moon over the last 20 years, uh, most likely because of the grim effects of man-made climate change on the natural world and now onto the rest of the universe. Um <laughs> I really like both of these. I I don't love that we are screwing over the rest of the universe, but I guess it is inescapable. And I also just really like that they really wanted to give up on collecting this data and then it turned <laughs> out to be a, the, very good that they did it. Um, but I think I'm going to have to give it to the coral reefs because I love yes. a moon detecting gene. That was a nasty trick. <laughs> I can't resist a a dramatic coral mating that's driven by Uh, moon detecting genes. Of course you can't. I guess that makes sense. Well, with that shameful performance, I will usher (laughs) us into Ask the Science Couch, where we ask listener questions to our creepy couch of devious scientific minds. And this question is from our very own Paola Garcia Prieto, who you can follow on Twitter at Paola G underscore P. And Paola asks, why is she leaving us? I assume referring to the fact that the moon is getting farther away. Mm -hmm. Is that the case? Yeah. So it's actually been happening for as long as the moon has existed. It just has been because of physics. And I will Mm -hmm. do my best to explain those physics. So the way that gravity works, starting from the very basics, is that anything (laughs) with mass pulls on anything else with mass like a little bit. So, like, the Earth's gravity is acting on all of us, but, like, we are also exerting a little bit of gravitational pull on the Earth. It's just negligible. And so, like, the Earth Mm -hmm. and Moon are both exerting gravitational pulls on each other, and there's, like, a transfer of energy there. Um, The Moon's gravity pulls on Earth's oceans to cause an uneven distribution of water called a tidal bulge, and that uh, bulge of ocean water as the Earth is rotating is what makes high and low tides. It would be very different, like the the water levels would be very different if the moon was not there, for example. But in addition to affecting that, um, because the earth is rotating and the moon is rotating and the earth is revolving around the sun and the moon is revolving around the earth, there are effects on 
how all these objects are moving around each other too. So as the the oceans slosh against the Earth's crust, it causes some friction and it is gradually slowing the Earth's rotation down Mm -hmm. uh, about 1.8 milliseconds per century specifically because of the moon. It's like a long-term change. But the energy doesn't just disappear. So some of that energy gets transferred back to the moon, making its uh, revolution speed, so like how fast it goes around the Earth, a little bit faster, but also pushing it farther away from the Earth at around 3.78 centimeters per year. So like a metaphor from a scientist that I liked was if someone was sitting on a chair and like spinning around, the person spinning around in the chair is the Earth and you are the moon. Uh, and you reached out to try and stop them, then there would be some energy transfer to you, whether like your hand hurting or you'd be like bumped out of the way a little bit. And that Mm. bump is what's happening to the moon. As the earth is Mm. slowing down, the moon is like, whoa, I'm flying away a little bit and like in a a wider orbit. And so uh, we've we've calculated that 3.78 centimeters per year based on measuring the distance from the earth to the moon with lasers and like, doing the math backwards. And we don't really have to worry about it because it'll take around 15 billion years for the moon to stop moving away from the Earth because its revolution is exactly matched up with the Earth's rotation. Wild. If you want to ask the Science Couch, follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents where we'll tweet out the topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to at Iviarelli at 666fruits and everybody else who tweeted us your questions for this episode. Devogi, thank you so much for being here with us again. We hope it wasn't too scary. I, I survived. Thank you for having me. Deboki is also very good at posting on Twitter all the stuff she's working on. So it's all yeah, there it's as well. Now the only thing I use Twitter for is <laughs> posting my thoughts about reality TV and then updates on stuff I'm working on. Perfect. That's all anybody should be using it for, I think. If you like the show and you want to help us out, it's real easy to do that. First, you can go to patreon.com slash scishowtangents to become a patron and get access to things like our newsletter and our bonus episodes. Second, leave us a review wherever you listen. It's super helpful and it helps us know what you think about the show. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell tell people people about about us. Thank you for joining us. I've been Sam Schultz. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Deboki Chakravarti. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and me who edits a lot of these episodes along with the horrible Hiroko Matsushima. Our scary social media organizer is Paola Garcia Prieto. Our editorial assistants are Deboki Chakravarti and Alex Billow. Our sound design is by Joseph Boonamedish, and we couldn't make any of this without our putrid patrons on Patreon. Thank you, and remember, the mind is not a coffin to be filled, but a jack-o'-lantern to be lighted. But one more thing. (laughs) Like we've been talking about all this episode, we have put 12 humans on the moon, and we've also put a lot of their waste on the moon. And NASA, in fact, keeps a catalog of man-made items that we've left behind because they're not needed for the flight home. So besides just bags of poop, uh, this list includes... 25 defecation collection devices, 15 urine collection assemblies, and three urine receptacle systems, among (laughs) other things. So the moon is a literal wasteland.
I like to imagine those are all just different ways to say buckets. Just <laughs> throwing buckets out there. High tech buckets. Uh-huh. Just some like Home Depot buckets that they went and bought. Yeah, truly wild that there's like different amounts of urine collection assemblies and urine receptacle systems seems fake. <laughs> They're all toilets. <laughs>